Would you bow your heads with me at this time? Father, we come before you this morning, Lord. And God, my prayer is simple today. God, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see your scriptures. God, I pray for whatever is standing in our way of encountering your word this morning. Maybe we think we're so smart, so intelligent, so intuitive. God, would you humble us? God, we read these words and and sometimes they just feel like words on a page. And so we ask your spirit to come and to open the eyes of our heart that we would see this deeply and that we would encounter it and realize that we can change this morning, that we can have a brand new future for the rest of our lives because we have encountered your word. God, teach us to give up self for the power of community, for the power of your church. I pray you'd kill the preferences that we feel like everything is about, Lord. And that you would drive us to love our brothers and sisters more than our opinions and our preferences. And all these dividing things, Lord, that just seem to get in the way of your mission, Lord. God, selfishness is from the devil, and we we call it out in this place, Lord. Jesus, you told us that, that the world would know that we were your disciples by the way that we loved each other, that that was the way they would see it. So, Lord, may it be so in this place. God, I pray that I would be useful to these people this morning as I open your scriptures. And I pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you'll remain standing with me at this time, and if you have a Bible, open to Ephesians chapter 4. Our scripture reading this morning is at Ephesians 4, uh, verses 1 through 16. We've got a lot of work to do, a lot of ground to cover, and so I'm going to try to move quickly. Uh, It'll be up on the screen. And before I I dive into Ephesians 4, I'm going to read one verse out of Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, verse 16, and then I'm going to switch over to Ephesians chapter 4. So Romans 1, verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Then Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16, Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descends is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May God bless this word. You may be seated at this time. So, uh, I have the privilege of closing out a sermon series we've been in for four weeks uh, that we've simply entitled The Brave Series. And uh, the conclusion that, that we've come to and that I've come to, and I think the scriptures make pretty clear, is that uh, if we're going to live for the gospel in this world, if we're going to be about the business of Jesus and proclaiming his amazing news to the world, that we're going to have to be brave, right? Um, I don't think it's a stretch to say, and sometimes being a Christian in our day and age, it feels like you're kind of swimming up, uh, swimming against the tide, as they say, right? It's like everything seems to go one way and feels like we're kind of walking a different way. And I find it quite exciting, but some people, I guess it's one of those things where it, it does scare us at times, right? And so we're going to have to be brave. And, but how ironic is it that on the day I'm closing a sermon series entitled Brave, that we're celebrating the unfortunate 15th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. Do you remember where you were when you found out about the Trade Center tragedy? They say for my generation that that, uh, when the two planes crashed into the World Trade Center towers, that for us that was kind of like our JFK assassination moment. Like many of you remember where you were at uh, whenever JFK was assassinated and when you found out the news. And for, for my generation... We remember where we were at when we found out that two planes had crashed into the Trade Center. I was in uh, my seventh grade science class, and I knew something was up when my teacher interrupted um, some work we were doing. And my teacher was not a very relational guy, not a very emotional guy. And then all of a sudden, he interrupts our work and has this kind of shaky tone in his voice. And I even think he had like a tear in his eye as he was telling us that a plane had crashed into the World Trade Center tower. And if you remember that day, it was, it was so unnerving because I remember when we first found out the first plane hit, the thought was like, well, well maybe, maybe it was just like a random plane. Maybe a pilot driving a commercial plane somehow got lost or something happened. And, and, and maybe, maybe one just happened. And then like the second plane hit the second tower. And then there was word about something happened at the, the Pentagon. Another plane had crashed. And it, it felt like maybe every building was at risk. I read a fascinating article that the the government was so concerned for the president's safety, they felt no building was safe, and so they took the president into the air because they found the safest place for him to be was just to fly around the country so as to not have to land in one building until they could get the situation under control. It was a terrifying day. And yet in the midst of a terrifying, horrible event, the, the worst disaster in our modern history that, that probably many of us will ever experience, the story began to emerge that whenever the, the planes flew into the tower and there was uncertainty about the people in the building and there was even concern that the buildings might actually fall, 
that there was a group of men and women who were policemen and firefighters and I'm sure other individuals who like literally rushed into the building to save people. People with families and children, people with dreams and hopes and ambitions and goals in life, people who cared about their own life rushed into a building to risk their life to save others. And I would even argue that for for many of us, that moment is almost like the image of bravery that we have in our world. It's maybe the most cultural, relevant example of bravery that, that we've ever seen. Because many of those people lost their life in an attempt to save other people's lives who were in need. And I was thinking about it this week. What is bravery? What, what, what makes somebody brave? Like, like, like when we say this word brave, you know, I, I don't want, just want to assume that we all know what that means or that I know. Or you, I, I was thinking about that word this week. What does it mean to be brave? Like what's the difference between like a, a brave guy and a coward? What's the difference? And if you're like me, your natural reaction is to say, well, to be brave is, is the absence of fear. They look at a scary situation, they, they see something, and, and they look at fear in its face, and they say, I'm not afraid, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what I need to anyway. We often say bravery is the absence of fear, but I think when you really press in on this topic, that's not true. I do not believe that the men and the women who rushed into the Trade Center Tower were not afraid. I believe they were afraid. I believe every hero that faces um, a a, a moment where they must stand for the right thing, where they've got to go against the grain, I believe every one of those people is afraid, if not terrified and petrified. You see, I, I do not believe the root of bravery is an absence of fear, but in reality, I believe the root of bravery is is the absence of self. I believe the root of bravery is the absence of self. The people that rushed into the Trade Center Tower, they were afraid, but they were willing to lay down their life for the betterment of others. Nelson Mandela said, I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but it is he who conquers that fear. And then John Wayne, good old John Wayne, he says, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. And so when we talk about the Brave series, at the core of what we're calling you to do, if I just sum all of it up, it's an opportunity for you and for me to partake in the absence of self. Because when we read Ephesians chapter 4, I think we read this and we think it's just some nice, encouraging words and Paul's just saying to be nice and love each other and it's kind of like a helpful suggestion but what I want to submit to you is that if we read these words today as we're going to go into it we're going to go deep into it if it doesn't kind of scare you a little bit I, I don't think you really get it if you don't feel the weight of this text as to what you will have to give up in your life in order to achieve this calling that Paul says is worthy of the gospel 
If it doesn't scare you, then I don't think you quite get it. You see, Ephesians 4 is terrifying and ridiculous in comparison to the way the world tells us that we should live. Live for yourself. Follow your dreams. Another saying, get yours, as they say, right? That's another saying, right? Get yours. Accomplish your dreams. Do what you want to do, right? Don't let anyone else characterize what you should or should not be doing. You see, I came in to this text, honestly, as the worst thing you're supposed to do as a pastor, I came in thinking I knew what I was going to preach before I'd even studied the text. And I, I thought, well, the whole point of the sermon is going to be that, that we as a church have to be brave against the world, that we've got to stand firm and all this kind of stuff. And, and that's true. But I think what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 is that if you and I love each other in, in the church community the way that we're supposed to, everything else works itself out. I think the real bravery the church needs is the bravery that it takes to begin to decrease self within us, to lay our lives down for one another. I think that's the bravery that is required in the church. Is are, are, are you willing to do this? Are you willing to lay down your life and your preferences and your wants that we could be one unit, one body, one people proclaiming one message, which is the gospel? I think this is where the bravery comes from. As I referenced earlier in John 13, verses 34 through 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to begin diving into this verse by verse. In verses uh, 1 through 6, uh, Paul begins to kind of lay down both a theological and a, a, a relational uh, foundation of which he's going to build on throughout the text. And so uh, the spirit of the text is really laid out in verses 1 through 6, and then in verses 7 through 16, he kind of tells us ultimately why he calls us to this. And so let's just read verses 1 through 3. Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so what Paul says here is he's writing to a church that he planted, a church that he's still pastoring and coaching and mentoring, a, a church that he's trying to help build a healthy culture in so they're able to fulfill the calling God has given them. He's writing to them. He's encouraging them to bear together. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so he says that there is a life that there is a manner, that there is a, a posture that is worthy of the gospel. So you believe this, and so, but there's only a certain way to live your life that is worthy of this calling that you have. And he lists it in verses, verse 2. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And what Paul says here, I think, in these first few verses is that the church body, which is you and me, the church body meaning the people, lays down the interest of me for the power of us. I know that's not a proper statement, right? I know it's not a complete sentence, but I, I wanted to convey it this way because it was, it was the way I thought made the most sense for what I'm saying, that the church body lays down the interest of me for the power of us. Brave love 
lays down the interest of me for the power of us. You see, the world knows nothing of this, but the Christian should know nothing but this. He says we are to walk with our brothers and sisters, and he gives four specific examples. He says in humility, in gentleness, in patience, and bearing with one another in love. He says humility, the title this morning is, is Brave Humility. I think it sums up everything I'm talking about, right? This, this idea that you would not think of yourself as better than you are, as better than other people, that you would be willing to sacrifice yourself in many ways for the betterment of the body and the people, to not just be an individual, but to become a part of a movement in this world. You see, every church is a movement, White Oak Baptist Church is a movement of God in this city. We are a movement. We are a people that proclaim a message of hope and love and peace and beauty and wonder and fulfillment and that good things are coming and that sinners can be forgiven at the cross of Christ. We preach an amazing message and we are a movement of this message. But Paul says this will only happen if we are humble towards one another. He says to be to have a manner of gentleness, meaning to be sensitive of the way that we handle one another, especially the people who we don't understand, right? You need gentleness with people who are different than you. You need gentleness with babies, right? Because they're not like you, right? They're sensitive. You can't drop them, right? You got you to be soft, right? They, they haven't developed the way that you have, right? We have to be gentle with one another in our journeys, He says with all patience, meaning we are slow to give up on each other. We're willing to be a part of a process as a church. We're patient. We know it doesn't happen overnight. We know we're all works in progress. And then he says to bear with one another in love. And that word bear is to stick together in love. Ultimately, what Paul calls for in these first few verses is the disintegration of self in your life. And this is so tough. It's so tough and it's so painful. And, and the reason is because, like, we like stuff a certain way, you know? I got my preferences. I've told you guys, like, I, I eat almost the same thing for lunch every day. I go to Chick-fil-A. I get a Chick-fil-A sandwich. No, no combo, just a sandwich. No butter, extra p- pickles, medium fry, and a cup of water every day. And I'll be honest, I love getting lunch with people, but the one thing I don't like is I have to give up my preference of lunch spot to go get lunch with one of you guys or with somebody, right? I'm like, you sure you don't just want to grab coffee, you know? The disintegration of self is difficult because we like things a certain way. The disintegration of self is difficult because we like people thinking we're awesome. I love it when you guys think I'm awesome. I, I, I like it a lot, you know, like, I mean, I, I like it, you know, like, I, I like, I like people, like, you're the man, I like that, you know, and you do too. When you're like, man, good sermon, I'm like, yes. And I fight against it, you know, but I, I feel it. I, I like being awesome. I, I, I like, I like being elevated. I, I, I do. And you do too. Every human does. You you like being the man or the woman or the 
the gifted, awesome person. Like, I'm, I'm not just a teacher. I'm the best teacher. I'm the, I'm the most interactive person. I'm the most charismatic. I'm, the, I'm not just intelligent. I'm the smartest. I'm not just athletic. I'm the best. I run marathons, right? Like, I'm, 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 I'm an awesome person. Like, we, we like that, and yet the scriptures say that we can't have this. We can't have a movement when everyone's trying to assert their awesomeness in a place. The disintegration of self is tough because we like getting what we want. Who here doesn't like getting what they want? Everybody likes getting what they want. I roll out of bed trying to get what I want every day. You know, that, that, that's kind of like, that's kind of what we do. But it's a whole shift in our thinking the disintegration of self is tough because we like people serving us and we like people meeting our needs and, and we like being large and in charge. But we lay down the interest of me for the power of us. And Paul theologically unifies this in verse 4 when he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And what Paul basically says is he uses the unity of the faith to say that we as Christians are to act as a unit. We're to act as a unit, as a church, as a people. We often use a phrase here called the Lone Ranger Christian. The Lone Ranger Christian is an immature Christian every time. Unless you're on the forefront of the lines sharing the gospel with unreached peoples, I believe God gives grace to those people, right? I believe he, he, he gives those people a, a sense of maturity. But the Lone Ranger Christian in our context is an immature Christian because they're unwilling to lay their life down for the body. They're unwilling to settle on their preferences because they're really important. A few months back, um, Halsey and I decided to uh, start this like, like workout routine that we wanted to do. And uh, I was really discouraged because my whole life I've kind of been somewhat active, but I've always been like really bad at getting a consistent routine. And I just assumed in my life that I was never going to be someone that was like consistently having a really good schedule for like being healthy and stuff. And as I'm getting older, I know even at 27, I'm getting, I feel like I, I, my back hurts more than it used to, you know. And, like, I get stiff because I don't do much anymore. Like, there's no recess at my job. And so, like, I, 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 if I wanted to, I could literally go, like, two years without running. And, I mean, not even, like, breaking a sweat unless I was walking outside during the summer, you know. And, and so, you know, the, the adult lifestyle in a lot of ways doesn't require a lot of activity. And so, like, it's like your body begins to, like, kind of get unhealthy. And so we came up with this thing where it's like, okay, so the reason why we go to church every Sunday is because we have a set time and a set, pl- set place. And so for us, we have spiritual renewal every Sunday morning with our church community. And we go every week because we have a set time and a set place. And, and so it always happens for us. And it's healthy. It's, it's where our family goes for that. But I said, what if we tried the same thing for physical exercise, right? Same time, same place, same schedule. And we had a set time for like physical activity and physical health for like me and houses before we had a baby. And so we decided every Saturday morning we were going to go to Memorial Park around 9 or 10 in the morning like, and never miss. Like, it's a sin to miss, right? Like, we got we to really do this if we're going to do it, right? And so we set this schedule, and we kept it. Like, I mean, we went, like, I mean, like, month after month after month after month. And before you know it, like, healthy lifestyle choices just becomes what you do. 
It's not hard because I, I just wake up on Saturday morning. No, I wake up, I put on my running clothes, and I go to Moore Park. I don't ask myself, do I really feel like it? You know, did I have a bad day today? Am I emotionally unstable? You know, like, I just go, right? Just do it, you know, because that's what you do, right? And then, like, we had this, like, massive life shift because we had a baby, right? And, uh, and then I was kind of discouraged. I was like, man, I guess, I guess that's it for me. I guess no more healthiness because I got a baby. And... I mean, I'm not going to take my child to Memorial Park every Saturday with us because my kid doesn't want that, you know. Because, like, immediately I began to fall into, like, this, I just want my child to be comfortable mode, right. Like, my whole point, I want, I want to be comfortable, you know. So I can't, I can't take him to Memorial Park in 90, like, 103 temperature Houston, Texas during the summer, right. And so we talked about it. We said, so, so what are we going to do here? Like, do we just not run, like, whatever. And, and she's like, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to get the, the stroller. And she's going to go with us every single week. And so every Saturday, we load Molly into the thing, load her up in the car, and she's a little uncomfortable, and she sweats too. And some people probably think we're bad parents, right? But we made a conscious choice to say that we want Molly to grow up seeing herself as part of a unit, we don't want Molly to think the whole world revolves around her and we only do things that she wants to do. And, you know, if she doesn't want to work out, then we don't go work out. It's like, no, 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 mom and dad want to work out. And, 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 and we change a lot of diapers, okay? And, and, and we help you and we, we comfort you when you cry, okay? And so you're going running with us, right? Because we, we want to, right? Because it's good for us, you know? I got to bend over with my back to change your diapers, so I got to be healthy, you know? Like it all, it all works together. And so... But, but we, the goal of, of, of parenting, I'm, I'm learning, isn't to make sure your child is comfortable, but it's to raise them with good character. It's, it's to make sure they feel loved and cherished and, and valued, but that they're a part of something bigger than themselves. And the point of the Bible is to mold us into people who find happiness in Jesus, but then who learn to unify that in the church body. And so Paul gives a call for unity and love, but then he explains why, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna blow through this really quickly. Um, verses 7 through 10, I'm not going to read them. It's, it's a little bit confusing if you read through it. Um, it's kind of one of those things you'll have to study to understand it. But essentially in verses 7 through 10, what, what Paul says is he uses the idea of salvation to talk about the fact that you are gifted by God. Okay, so that's point number two. You are gifted by God. You. Like if you're a Christian, you have spiritual gifts. Period. Like, you're gifted, so get over it. You're gifted. And you, you have things that you're good at, right? And you have things that God wants you to use for his glory and for us as a church body. You are gifted by God. And he uses the image of salvation where he says, the same way that Christ died for all, the same way that he offers salvation for all, he also gives gifts to men. And so he, the same way we understand, well, yeah, anybody can, you know, can come to Jesus and accept him or whatever, right? And the same way he says we, we often don't apply that to gifting, because we look at like preachers or pastors or, or music people or, or, you know, whatever religious things we think are, are so good and gift or whatever, right? Like, like he says, everybody has gifts. And so you are gifted by God. And there's, there's lists of spiritual gifts in the, in the Bible, but, but I extend that to all kinds of gifts. Every gift short of sin, right? If you're a good organizer, if you're good with people, if you're good with getting involved in the community, if you're good with like money and finance, if you're good at like building things, if you're a persuasive person, if you're good at music, anything that you're gifted at literally came from God himself. And the problem is we, we view our gifts as carnal and not divine. 
over our lives, as given from the hand of God to you. And and the older I get, the, the more I honestly believe people from the time they are born, they just have certain gifts. I used to be a real big, like, you know, um, nurture guy, like, like, you know, most people kind of end up being the way they're nurtured. And I mean, that's, that's true, but there are some gifts you cannot teach. You see siblings from the same family raised by the exact same parents turn out very different ways, different personalities, different, different giftings. It, it, it amazes me people that are artistic and that can draw stuff. I, I have tried and I'm horrible at it. Like, I, 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 can't, I, can't, I can't draw anything. I, was even, I remember the kid being in art class. Like, the teacher was so encouraging and that she couldn't fake it when she looked at my work, you know? It was like, I was, the, I was like, try again. Like that's, what, that's the response I always got, you know? Keep, keep doing it. Maybe you'll get better. But he begins to say that you were gifted by God. And so, so, so Paul was building an argument here. He says, look... Bear with one another, love each other, lay down your life, lay down the interest of me for the power of us. And then he says, you're gifted. And then the last point, he draws it home. In verses 11 through 16, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of of Christ. The big application this morning, the, the, the big why for all of this is that we unify our gifts in the church to amplify the gospel in a way we could never do alone. Paul uses the image of a body to describe the church, and I love that, right? Like some of us are like arms and hands and noses, and I don't know if tooth is a part, you know, maybe you're a, a gum or something, a tooth. Someone's a digestive system, you know, but you got to have it, you know. Someone's got to do the dirty work, you know. He uses this image of a, of a body, of, of a unit that comes together, right? And when you begin to understand the way Paul sees the church, you begin to understand why this Lone Ranger mentality could, could never work, right? Because a hand by itself is creepy, right? <laughs> it's creepy. You go to a restaurant, you see a leg by itself, that's, that's weird, that's unnatural, that, that's, that's not like it should be, right? I mean, imagine if you were like the, and so let, let me just point on, imagine if you were like the only Christian in Northwest Houston. Imagine how daunting the task would be. But then look around you. And the hundreds and hundreds of other churches that meet across our city. Imagine that there was, you know, like there is 300 unreached people groups and you were the only person responsible for reaching all of them, right? It's daunting. But this is why we partner with the church. This is why we partner with global missions because it's, it's not daunting. It's possible in Christ because he has provided what we need to do this glorious task of bringing the kingdom that the world needs so deeply to this city and to this world. It is so possible. But only if we work as a body. This is why we partner with the church. And, and practical ways that we do this is, it, is we bear with love. We stick with each other. We, we, we stick it out, right? 
Number two, we think less about preferences and more about loving people, right? Our main goal in church is, you know, preferences or whatever, right? Things change. I, I tell people, um, you know, we don't even sing the songs I grew up with anymore, right? When was the last time we sang I Can Sing of Your Love Forever, right? We don't sing that. Like, it just, the song vanished. You know, I grew up with that song. I like that song, right? But whatever, it's, you know, it, it's gone. I don't know. It's probably never coming back, right? <laughs> Thing, it just, it happens, Right? And, and, and so what happens is we show up and we value relationships. I mean, I think this is one of the things that White Oak is so good at. I really think White Oak values relationships. We're, we're, we're all very different. I think White Oak is, is a more diverse church than most churches are. That's the problem of being in a city is we're different people, different backgrounds, different values, all thrown in this, this, this mixing pot to figure it out, Right? Another application is to find your gift, find what you're good at. And like I always say, ask other people what you're good at, okay? Like, that, that's a helpful thing, you know? There, you know, there are things I think in the past I thought I was good at, and I wasn't, you know? And so ask other people what you're good at. Pray about what you're good at. And then when you begin to find those gifts, you begin to unify those gifts. And then Paul in closing, in verse 15, says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, when joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul says that when we unite our gifts, when we have this brave humility that we are willing to lay down our lives for others, for the unity of the body, that we build an amazing, great church that brings the kingdom to our city. I'll close with a, um, with a story. I saw this uh, article in the New York Times, and uh, the article caught my attention because it was entitled, Researchers confront an epidemic of loneliness. And it's an article that's based out of the the UK. And what a lot of doctors are beginning to discover in the UK is that an increasing amount of physical, mental, and spiritual issues and health concerns are more tied to loneliness than they realized. And so what they're coming to find is that people who are lonely in their life tend to be less healthy naturally. And it makes sense when you think about it. Because if you're, if you're lonely and you don't have a running partner to go with, you're less likely to exercise. And if, if you're lonely, that means you may not have someone to talk about deep issues with so you don't strengthen each other like iron sharpens iron. If, if, you're, uh, if, you're, if you're lonely, you may not have someone who's there to encourage you and, and help you spiritually. They say in general, lonely people do less stuff, so therefore they're, they're less active. Maybe they, they leave their house less often. And it's come to the point that they've said that for the first time, and I quote, loneliness has eclipsed obesity as the best indicator of health issues. Meaning loneliness is worse for your health than obesity. What they've come to find is that community makes you healthier, it makes you smarter, makes you wiser, 
Community makes you happier, even though it's frustrating at times. It's an overall net gain. Community makes you better. And it's a gift from God to your life. Because God wants you to be happier, wants you to be more effective, wants you to have a positive outlook. He wants you to be encouraged. He wants you to have all these good and perfect things. And he's given us each other to make that happen. So we lay down the interest of me for the power of us. And yet it's funny because we would all agree that loneliness is bad, right? Like, we, I don't want to be lonely. That's, that's a bad thing. But yet so often we seek in this world to use our gifts in such a lonely fashion. Off doing my own thing with my own skill set. But the same way how in the gospel, Christ calls us from wandering in our sin, wandering in darkness, believing that's what we deserved, calls us out of the darkness and into marvelous light. Like we, we were sinful and broken and, and had rebelled against God, and yet he invited us back into the kingdom. And in the same way, our sanctification extends to our gifts in such that your gifts get unified with other people's gifts and we all get better. Because we need each other. The same way that we need Jesus for salvation, we need the church and community for effectiveness. And don't let the world tell you anything different. Because the same way the world doesn't offer salvation to humans, it has no idea about salvation. It doesn't know how to make us effective in this life for the kingdom. But Jesus does. And Paul teaches us this in Ephesians chapter 4. So in closing, to build a great gospel-centered church requires a brave humility. That's a life worthy of the gospel. And so church, let's walk in this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this calling. Because, Lord, we know it's a calling. We, we know you've called us out of a certain life and into a new life, God. And it's so exciting. But, God, we know that there are things that kind of seek to take us the, the other direction. And so I pray in the power of your spirit that you would unify us. And not just White Oak, Lord, but all the churches across the world. Unify them, God. That we would be effective for your hope in this world. God, we know the kingdom isn't a solo thing, Lord. It's a people and it's a movement. And so I pray we here at Wild Oak would be faithful to be brave with our movement and with what you're doing through us. We thank you for our gifts. We pray you would unify us in this place. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.